Well, good afternoon, everybody. We are starting another session, uh, and if you are trying to follow along with the uh, PowerPoints, you need to look at the one that is entitled Paul's Arrest and Trial and Execution, or I forgot exactly how that went, but the final of the uh, various PowerPoint ones. It's a very humid day, once again, in Henderson, Tennessee. Uh, perhaps if you live in Tennessee right now, uh, you're finding the same thing. Uh, and um, so this is a good place to be inside a building like this with a little bit of air conditioning and talking about the Bible and talking about one of the uh, inspiring characters in the Bible. As I reflect on the life of the Apostle Paul and I reflect on his sheer dedication to serving God and his sheer dedication to, to uh, 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 preaching the gospel regardless of the opposition that he felt that, that, he, that was given to him, it seems to me that this is a kind of individual that shames us in the way that we approach our Christianity, where we allow peer pressure to push us around so thoroughly, uh, where we are so eager to shift and change our convictions according to the political winds. We had Paul in the city of Jerusalem. He has been arrested and uh, is in custody, I suppose at this point, uh, protective custody on the part of the Romans. Uh, that's a very interesting scene. Uh, I picture the Romans finding themselves with their soldiers in a very hostile land. Uh, many of the cities and towns of the empire uh, would have been happy to have the Romans governing them. Uh, some of the places in uh, Greece and in Asia Minor appear to have been that way, rather peaceful and prosperous, enjoying the good business atmosphere that the Romans provided for everybody. But in the land of Palestine, there was this eternal desire, this hunger for uh, uh, having their own freedom and so there was always unrest and uprisings and the like and so uh, this must have been a desperate time sending out the troops and protecting people uh, from the rest of the mob now in chapter 23 of acts uh, Paul has some more encounters with the Jewish crowd he's brought out uh, the next day after that riot. Uh, he, and he says some significant things. I'd like to point them out in chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Uh, that's a very well-known well statement on Paul's part. Uh, the preacher in one uh, would probably want to say, okay, yes, he lived in all good conscience, but his conscience was not always right. And that would be true. Um, our conscience cannot be an accurate guide to everything that we say and do. We will want to have something more uh, reliable uh, than our conscience. But what Paul is really saying in this verse is he's saying, all of my life I have lived and behaved in a way as completely true to my convictions as I could be. What Paul is suggesting is that he's no hypocrite. If he felt like something needed to be done, if something was true, Paul would do it. Now, another interesting thing he does in this very same encounter, we read of in verse 6, Acts 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Uh, a reminder that the Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee prior to his conversion to Christianity. Uh, though Paul did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and though Paul did not believe that Jesus had been raised three days after his death, Paul would have believed that such a thing was possible if God were actually pleased with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, certainly, uh, Paul's theory was that God was against everything Jesus had stood for, uh, 
He was a Pharisee. He believed in resurrections. He believed in a general resurrection, that is, when we all die and one day we'll be raised again to see God. He believed in those things. So in one sense, he was still a Pharisee, even though also a Christian. He was a Pharisee by philosophy with regard to the resurrection. Verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Uh, by the way, that's another use of the word ecclesia, the assembly this time of Jewish people. Now, uh, Paul had taken a divide and conquer approach. Uh, he decided that if he'd make that declaration about being a Pharisee, maybe the Pharisees in the crowd would feel at least a little bit less antagonistic towards him. Verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the, some of the, scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bringing them into the barracks. Now, uh, significantly, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, as for as you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Uh, it uh, is comforting to me to see that the Apostle Paul was human after all. Uh, though he showed great courage many, many times, far greater courage than I would ever have shown under those circumstances, I think the very fact that God uh, took the time to give him courage, to tell him in that dream, uh, you're okay, and, and you'll preach the gospel here, and you'll do so in Rome, uh, reminds me that Paul was a man who, like any man, needs encouragement, needs strength from people around him, and in this case, the Lord God himself. Now, uh, verses 12 to 22, uh, we will not read these in Acts 23, but what it does is it tells of two particular incidents. The first is a group of very zealous, even fanatical Jewish people decided that they would try to tell the tribune to uh, take Paul down to Caesarea, and their hope was that they could ambush the Roman party that was defending Paul and perhaps um, kill Paul that way. They made a promise. They would not eat until they killed Paul. Uh, the title of my PowerPoint on this point is, These Guys Must Be Really Hungry Now. Uh, as you probably have suspected, uh, they never did kill Paul, at least not this particular Jewish group. Now, the map that I provided gives us some ideas of where Paul will go in the end, because what happens is a tribune uh, takes Paul by night and, and swiftly takes him down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. On the map, you might look down towards the bottom of the map, and in fairly large letters is the word Judea. Uh, just north of Judea is the town of Bethlehem. I'm sure you've heard of that town. And north of that is Jerusalem. You can see in the map that Jerusalem is located on a ridge uh, between the Dead Sea and the Jordan River on the east and, of course, the Mediterranean Sea on the west. Now, what they're going to do in the trip is that they're going to go from, oh, about 3,500 feet altitude in uh, Jerusalem and drop down to the coast. Uh, they will be traveling in a northeasterly direction until they get to Caesarea. You can see that about halfway up the coast of um, the Great Sea, as our map shows it. Now, I have a couple of images of Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea, named, of course, after the Caesar, and Maritima comes, of course, from uh, the idea of by the sea, uh, uh, maritime. Now, this image has uh, uh, the uh, fortifications on the edge of the city, and in the next image, we have a Roman aqueduct. 
you can see the classic pillars that the Romans built and you can see on the top the uh, support that would have held the water as it was taken from whatever the source of water was down to the city of Caesarea. You can also see part of the artificial harbor down below that. Uh, here is one of the remarkable building projects that uh, ancient people had undertaken. It was Herod the Great uh, that did this uh, without uh, backhoes and graders and caterpillars. He uh, put rocks and concrete and stone out into the ocean and provided a shelter then for ships to come in and have safe harbor from the uh, storms that would be on the Mediterranean. You can see also an image of the city walls. Uh, now, uh, down below, you can see the walls pretty steep and uh, uh, stiff, and then just above that, a second tier of walls. And so anybody trying to attack Caesarea would have had to have, go, have gone over both of these walls if they were to get into the city. The city was built after a Roman style, not a Jewish style. It was a Roman city. Uh, and the people there would have been civil servants and uh, uh, part of the ruling uh, class. There would have been soldiers, of course, and, and, and administrators of various kinds. They would have all been Romans. Uh, they would have been sent to Caesarea. And so it was heavily fortified because this was the uh, place from which uh, the Romans could send out their uh, uh, soldiers to keep control of the region. Acts 23 verses 31 to 35 describes a journey that would have been about 60 miles from Jerusalem uh, and about three and a half thousand feet uh, uh, in altitude from uh, Jerusalem down to the sea and it was full of uh, potential ambush. Uh, there were lots of rocks and uh, uh, mountains and uh, uh, places, uh, twists and turns in the road where uh, those Jewish people who were uh, hoping to ambush Paul might have been. It turns out that a nephew of Paul's had overheard the plot and he had come and spoken to Paul, and then Paul in turn speaks to the tribune, and hence the uh, very urgent measures to take Paul out of Jerusalem, because of course Jerusalem would have been a hostile environment, down to Caesarea, which would have been a much safer environment for the uh, Romans to take care of Paul at this particular moment. Uh, we read in Acts 23, verse 26, that the name of our tribune is Claudius Lysias. This is the man who helped Paul escape down to Caesarea, and as is the case with a lot of the Roman soldiers we meet in the uh, New Testament, uh, he's an impressive individual. Think about Cornelius, a centurion, uh, who is an impressive individual, and also several centurions who had met Jesus at one time or another. Um, uh, it appears that uh, many of these were uh, quality people. Uh, in verse 24 of uh, Acts chapter 24, we meet the first governor that Paul is going to encounter, and his name is Felix. Would you note with me Acts chapter 24? Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, Felix is now down in Caesarea, and he wants to hear uh, this prisoner's story, you see. And so, uh, verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present when I get an opportunity I will summon you. Uh, this is a, 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 a very interesting situation. What we have in this story is uh, 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 various people listening to the Apostle Paul uh, and, and hearing his case, and, and presumably they had in their hands the ability to either release Paul, set him free, 
or to condemn him. Uh, but Paul seems to turn the uh, situation around. He goes from being the accused uh, to uh, the one that's trying to get the people to listen to him, to uh, listen to his gospel message. He's trying in, in a word to convert them. I wonder if we would have the courage to do that today. Accused of being a Christian, standing in front of a court, uh, wondering if we will be imprisoned or worse uh, for our faith. Would we have enough faith to look around at the jury and the prosecution lawyer and the judge and all of the other individuals and, and try to convert them to Jesus Christ? Now, in Acts 24, uh, we have other characters as well. We have Drusilla. Uh, she is the youngest of three daughters of Herod Agrippa I. And at the age of 14, she married King Azizus of Emesa, but then she left him for Felix. Here she is, married to Felix then. Uh, she's a young woman with an awful lot of, uh, well, could we call it experience? When Paul speaks to them, uh, they're living together um, by what you might call an, uh, an arrangement. Uh, they're undocumented, you might say. Uh, so um, uh, you have uh, another character later on. His name is Festus, who succeeds Felix. Uh, what I'd like to do, though, is to think a little bit about that encounter where Felix speaks to Paul, sums up the situation that they were in. And in Acts 24, verse 24, we read that Paul spoke to this man about three things, uh, about faith in Jesus Christ. But, but notice uh, 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 he says in verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I'm uh, uh, fascinated by the fact that the Apostle Paul would speak about righteousness. Clearly, uh, Felix and Drusilla were not in a righteous relationship. They were not living righteously. Uh, secondly, we note that the Apostle Paul speaks about self-control. Again, here were individuals who uh, couldn't keep their hands off of each other, so to speak. Here were individuals who flouted um, Jewish law and society simply to live together, so they were not showing self-control. And, and surely the next statement about judgment is also significant. Here was Felix. He was supposedly the judge, uh, and yet uh, uh, Paul is uh, evidently suggesting that there's a greater judge, a supreme court. God himself will one day judge all people, even governors of uh, provinces in the Roman Empire. Now, uh, a later uh, no notice also that uh, Felix's response is fear, and then he suggests uh, 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 that go away. Uh, when a convenient time comes, then I will summon you. Uh, we do not know of any time when uh, Felix felt as if the time, the convenient time had come to hear Paul again. It's rather sad to think that he had this great opportunity, Felix did, to uh, find, about, find out about the Lord and perhaps even to turn his life over to the Lord, and yet he declined to do so. Now, uh, now uh, in chapter 25 and verse 13, we have another encounter that is equally fascinating. Uh, now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Festus will be the man who uh, succeeds Felix. He appears to be a man of uh, greater character than Felix had been. Uh, Felix had tried to bribe Paul. I think that's a rather funny one. Can you picture bribing an apostle? Can you picture uh, uh, hoping that this apostle is corrupt enough to take money and, and then uh, by his release? Uh, turns out Paul was not corrupt and he did not bribe uh, him. So now we have a, a different man. Uh, he, uh, verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man 
uh, left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accused uh, accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case such of such evils as I supposed. I uh, guess that uh, his idea was that he would be that Paul would be accused of uh, uh, murder and uh, theft and sedition and that kind of thing. But turns out that Paul's only accused of having a different uh, theological perspective than the Jewish leaders. Verse 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, whom Paul asserted to be alive. It, it's interesting how, how accurately uh, this Roman soldier has the story. Uh, notice uh, uh, how he uh, has summed it all up. This appears to be the case. Being at a loss to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. Now, uh, I, I think about... Uh, I think about uh, the encounter that Paul had between all of these rulers, uh, Festus and Felix and Agrippa, and I'm impressed with his courage, I'm impressed with his calmness, I'm impressed with his uh, articulate nature. Uh, Paul makes an appeal to Caesar in chapter 25, uh, verse 10, and that's what um, the governor was referring to. This is Paul's right. Uh, it, it seems, as a Roman citizen, uh, 25.10, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything before which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me, give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. The appeal to Caesar, of course, would have been the appeal to a higher court, uh, of course, the highest court of all in ancient Rome. And the idea was if you go to Rome, you're away from all the influences of Judea, uh, the passion and the anger and uh, rage that had been built up around Paul, uh, perhaps also with a higher power like Caesar. You couldn't bribe him or influence him uh, from far away Judea. And so that's probably what's uh, uh, going on. It's interesting that um, uh, Felix's concern, as he explains this to Grippa, uh, is that he has nothing to write to Caesar. Uh, it seems unreasonable, he suggests, uh, to send a man to Caesar uh, without an actual complaint, an accusation. Uh, what is he going to accuse him of? Uh, Presumably, Caesar is a very busy individual and doesn't want to be bothered by minor matters, uh, by individuals who uh, simply had theological disagreements with other people. Um, now, uh, um, it's also interesting to know what Paul says to Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 22 and 23. Acts 26, verse 22 and 23. It looks as if Agrippa is an individual who at least has some knowledge of Judaism, and so the governor is depending on him to uh, explain Jewish ways and perhaps uh, figure out what's going on with this Paul versus the Jewish leaders problem. In verse 22, Paul says, To this day I have had the help 
that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Uh, what lies at the heart of the Apostle Paul's message is that conviction that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I love the scene in Acts chapter 26. I can picture uh, these dignitaries sitting on thrones wearing their uh, pomp and circumstance uh, 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 clothing with uh, perhaps medals uh, from battles that they had fought and awards that they had received. I can picture them all listening eagerly to find out what this Jewish rabbi would say. Can you picture the Jewish man walking in, the Apostle Paul? Uh, can you imagine the chains on both wrists as if he was some dangerous criminal who, who might do something uh, violent in that room as if he would do something like that? Uh, can you imagine the Apostle Paul uh, looking up to Agrippa and, and saying that um, he, uh, uh, what his story was uh, in Acts chapter 26, and we won't read the entirety of this, uh, Paul tells for the third time in the book of Acts his own story of his conversion. And so uh, here we say in verse 24 is our next response. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud vo cried with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. It's fascinating that uh, uh, the governor is both impressed with Paul's depth of knowledge and understanding, but also just a little bit derisive. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Uh, for the king knows, and I suppose he's turning to Agrippa at this point, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I notice that the Apostle Paul is driving home what he hopes is an advantage, uh, not giving Agrippa a chance to respond. He simply says, I know where you stand on this. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response is a lovely one. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, uh, it's an extraordinary statement that Agrippa makes. There are different translations to uh, what is going on, but I've noted in the uh, uh, PowerPoints that there are three reactions from Festa as Festus and Agrippa to Paul's speech. Notice these. Number one, Festus cries out, your great learning has driven you mad. And Agrippa, in the second case, uh, says, almost you persuade me to become a Christian, or in a short time you persuade me to become a Christian. And then both of them respond at the end of Paul's speech. He's not done anything worthy of death. He, does, he shouldn't go to Rome on what we have. Now, one of the questions that scholars have often asked is exactly what Agrippa's attitude was when he made that statement, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian, or in the ESV that I'd read a moment ago, uh, in a short time do you expect me to become a Christian? Uh, what were Agrippa's words like? Uh, of course, we don't have a video of Agrippa speaking at that particular moment. So was Agrippa sarcastic? Uh, was he uncomfortable shifting backwards and forwards uh, under the pressure that Paul had pressed upon him? Uh, was he sincerely close to becoming a Christian? Was that actually the case? There's a couple of things I'd like to suggest as we think about Agrippa's attitude towards the Apostle Paul, because it tells us uh, a great deal about how people generally responded to this man about whom we study. Uh, notice, first of all, Agrippa's attitude has always been respectful uh, and thoughtful 
towards the apostle. Notice Acts 25 and verse 24 that we had read just a few moments ago. Acts 25, verse 24. Uh, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Uh, so there is the accusation towards the Apostle Paul and uh, perhaps the unreasonableness uh, with which Paul's detractors have approached it, shouting uh, at the tops of their voices towards Paul. But then notice Acts 26 and verse 1. Agrippa's response. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I'm impressed with the respect with which the king uh, uh, give, gives Paul. Uh, you know, go ahead, speak for yourself. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 32, uh, we read these words. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So there again, he's kindly disposed towards Paul throughout the proceedings. Uh, uh, so he's probably not sarcastic, it seems to me, when he says, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. And notice also that Paul takes Agrippa seriously. In verse 29, we had read this just a moment ago. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The irrepressible Paul. Uh, what Paul expected in this courtroom scene, courtroom scene uh, was to uh, give the invitation and see all the dignitaries and the king and the governor and the soldiers and the witnesses all to come down and beg to be baptized. That, uh, you know, Paul is almost surprised that it doesn't happen. Uh, here is an individual who has in his heart the desire to reach people uh, continually. And so both um, Agrippa and Paul take each other seriously, it seems. Uh, I think that probably Agrippa is impressed with Paul. He's impressed with Paul's delivery and with his message and with his urgency, uh, although, as we are aware, he does not become a Christian. I think about the uh, fact that uh, Agrippa says, you almost convince me to become a Christian. I think about Jesus' words in Mark 12 and verse 34, where he says to a young man, you are not far from the kingdom. Uh, it seems to me that there are two kinds of people in our world. One would be an almost Christian, one who almost became a Christian, one who thought about it, one who said that maybe next week or when the time is right, I'll become a Christian. And there are altogether Christians, uh, people who make that commitment and live and serve the Lord uh, from the bottom of their hearts. Now, what we have following the Apostle Paul's appeal to Caesar is a voyage um, given in great detail by Luke uh, as, um, uh, the, uh, uh, as, the, as the soldiers attempt to take the Apostle Paul across the Mediterranean to the very heart and soul of the ancient world of that day, the city of Rome. Uh, I, I wonder uh, if there is even an equivalent of something like that in our day and age. Uh, uh, perhaps it would be a New York City, or perhaps it would be a London. Uh, but the idea that here was the greatest city in the world, and here is a city that ruled the whole known world of that day, and, and here Paul was going to be brought by the Roman authorities themselves to the very heart of the empire, where, where, where he could preach the gospel there. Uh, I smile as I think about it. This is uh, uh, the, the trip is paid for by my Romans. Uh, uh, Paul just simply is taken over there. Now, uh, the, the trip begins uh, on calm seas, and in fact, they hardly seem to be able to get the ships to move because the wind is not blowing. But you are probably aware that as time went on, they found themselves in a horrific storm. They probably waited too long, uh, too deeply into the winter uh, season uh, in the Mediterranean. Winter is when the storm 
storms and the rains and all of that come. And so we read in Acts 26 and verse uh, uh, 20 uh, where, uh, where they are at that particular point. Um, I'm sorry, Acts, um, uh, Acts 27 and verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Please note that the use of the word hour uh, tells us that Luke is actually with Paul at this point. Here they are crossing the Mediterranean, and a tremendous storm uh, rises up, and, and they haven't seen sun or moon or stars. They don't know what day it is. Uh, they don't know whether it's day or night. Uh, they... Uh, uh, feel as if, uh, well, I guess they didn't have global positioning devices. You would have to depend on the stars to be able to tell where you were in relation to anything. I have a map uh, that shows the general uh, uh, direction of the Apostle Paul and, and the party that he's with, uh, sailing from Caesarea uh, uh, and then uh, north a little bit and then making their way across the uh, Mediterranean. You can tell uh, as they approach Malta, uh, that's where the uh, great storm takes place. And so they're driven along. Uh, the storm is tremendous. Uh, I, I suppose only somebody who's been on a ship uh, on the sea uh, could really be impressed with how, how powerful the uh, nature is and how flimsy uh, uh, the best that human beings can make might be. Uh, even in our day and age, when we have metal ships or iron ships uh, or the like, uh, the ocean is still far more powerful than we. Now, it's also interesting that as time goes on, uh, Paul becomes sort of the leader of the group. Uh, certainly you have Roman soldiers and, and you have perhaps uh, merchants and traders and other people. You have other prisoners, as it turns out. You have sailors and you no doubt have a captain as well. Uh, you have a, a, a tribune who's in charge of the whole process. But Paul becomes a leader in this by sheer force of personality. Please note Acts 27, beginning with verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Man, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Uh, Paul, straightforward as always, tells them that they should have listened earlier. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me the angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you and all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Uh, now, I love the fact that the Apostle Paul has taken leadership and tells them, uh, we're okay. Uh, the ship will be lost, but we will survive it. Um, it does help to have a, have a preacher along, as I suggested in the notes. Uh, uh, here he has a connection with God. Notice also um, the actions of the sailors and the soldiers. Acts 27, verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea with about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. In both cases, I, I suppose, what they're doing is learning that the sea is becoming more and more shallow and they're afraid of running aground. Uh, um, uh, this taking a sounding probably was uh, something along the lines of dropping an, a, a chain uh, down into uh, the ocean, uh, maybe with uh, some kind of weight at the bottom of it, and when the weight hit the bottom of the uh, sea, uh, when it hit ground again, uh, they would pull it up and measure the length of the chain and be able to say how deep the water was at that point. 
Verse 28, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for days to come, for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the, away the ropes of the ship and uh, of the boat and let it go. I suppose at this point the sailors who were experienced uh, in matters of the sea uh, understood that the ship was going to be destroyed. Uh, perhaps they knew better than uh, the landlubbers that were uh, the guests on the ship. And so they were saying basically, well, we're going to abandon, abandon the ship. It is, after all, doomed. Uh, so uh, that's what they were um, hoping to do. Um, Paul had now taken a degree of leadership in the ship. We'd already noticed that a few moments ago. But notice in verse 33 how Paul is the one who calms everybody else down and how they all listen to him. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any one of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. I love this image of the preacher praying to God. Uh, who was around him? Soldiers and merchants and sailors. Uh, none of them would be uh, classes that you would think of as particularly religious necessarily. Uh, but they listened to him and they allowed him to do these things uh, respectfully, it seems. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. They were, all, they were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And so here we see the Apostle Paul sort of like a cork uh, rising to the top of the water, uh, an individual that other people responded to respectfully uh, uh, for the most part. And so we, we, see, uh, uh, we see this. Now, now there was another practice that uh, would show us um, something of the, the uh, admiration that Paul had developed in verse 43 of the same chapter. Uh, one moment, I turned the page of my Bible to read this, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept him from carrying out their plan. Uh, it would be the plan to kill the prisoners. He ordered those who had swim to jump overboard and first make for the land. Uh, the practice apparently was to uh, kill prisoners in an instance like this. Uh, they would be afraid that the prisoners would escape if they jumped into the sea and swam to land. Uh, and, of course, somebody would be uh, held responsible for escaped prisoners. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the leader, the, the soldiers, um, did not want to do that because uh, they already were impressed by the Apostle Paul. In Acts 28, verses 1 through 10, we see the uh, uh, people in the ship have uh, landed uh, on an island. Uh, verse 1 of 28, after, after we sail safely through... We then learnt that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. You're probably aware, uh, I guess, if you've been camping somewhere and are going to build a fire for a barbecue or a fire for warmth, uh, to be careful when you start uh, um, uh, rifling into uh, wherever the pile of um, uh, firewood is. Uh, there might be snakes there. And so this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. I picture the snake coming out rather agitated and attaching himself to Paul. 
When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, uh, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and sounded no and suffered no harm. Uh, they uh, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no most misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Well, um, here's a trial by Viper, and once again the Apostle Paul uh, impresses people uh, by his demeanor. Um, he also heals one of the leading individuals in uh, this island before he leaves. In chapter 28 and verse 11, we read that Paul picks up another ship after three months, it says. We sailed in a ship that had wintered on the island, uh, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Uh, now, uh, that's what my ESV says, the twin gods. Some translations will give the names of the twins. Uh, they would be Castor and Pollux. These were two sons of Zeus, and they were believed to be guardians of the de or deities of the sailors. And that uh, probably what happened is on the bow or the front of the ship, uh, somebody would have carved uh, the images of these two twins, and it would be uh, sort of a talisman to uh, give good luck and good fortune to sailors as they moved around. Uh, in chapter 28 and verse 15, as Paul and his party approaches uh, the city of Rome, we read this, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Again, I would like to point out the humanity of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it, it, it is a tremendously scary thing to do what he's doing. He's been a prisoner for a long time. He will face the most powerful man in the world at, at some time in the future, Caesar himself. Uh, will Caesar be fair? Will Caesar find him guilty and have him executed? Or will Paul be released? He doesn't know. Uh, but at this particular point, he sees the brethren come out to meet them uh, on the way to Rome, and that gives Paul a little bit of more courage. It's also interesting to see uh, a response that happens in the city of Rome when Paul meets the Jewish community there. Notice, if you would, Acts 28, beginning with, with verse 17. You would have thought with a vehemence that the people in Jerusalem had uh, accused Paul that they might have sent letters ahead and told the people in the city of Rome, the Jewish people, watch out, beware of this individual. He's a bad fellow, this apostle Paul. But it turns out they had not done that. Uh, verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against the people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was deli delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I, had no, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers come, coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from what your, what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. I, I love the response of the local Jewish community. Uh, they inform Paul, We've got no information about you. No accusations were sent ahead by letter or anything like that. Guess they didn't have Facebook accounts. Maybe the Judean Jews would have sent it to them, right? Uh, but they didn't know anything about that. I love that last statement. We've heard about Christians. And we know that uh, Christians are a sect 
that is S-E-C-T, everywhere spoken against. Uh, uh, I wonder uh, what, to what degree that has changed today. Do you suppose worldly people still like to cast aspersions on the church? Do you suppose worldly people like to point out what they see of, uh, of as hypocrisy amongst Christians? Uh, perhaps that would make them feel as if they are free then to do uh, you know, the evil things that they might do. Uh, what happens is that uh, in Acts chapter 28, Luke describes a prolonged discussion uh, between Paul and these Jewish uh, people in the local community in the, Ro in the city of Rome, beginning with verse um, 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. Uh, it's fascinating to see that Paul is apparently in a, in a home. Uh, he is not thrown into a damp, dark uh, dungeon, uh, but he's in a home. He is uh, under house arrest, and he can even accept guests, in this case, large numbers of guests. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the Lord Moses and from the prophets. Uh, essentially, Paul is going to try and convert them. The irrepressible Paul, wherever he is, will try to do this. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart, people's heart has grown dull, but then they, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Here Paul is in the very center of the ancient world. Here Paul is in the most populous city, the most powerful city in the, in the world, in the Roman Empire that day. Now, I have not read the final verse in the book of Acts because there are some other things that we uh, will consider before we get to that particular verse. Uh, there's a couple of things that we would suggest happened while Paul was in prison not mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, first of all, um, there would be the uh, so-called prison epistles. I remind you that that would be the books of Philippians and Colossians and the uh, uh, book of Philemon. And uh, so what we've got here is the Apostle Paul beginning a very heavy, active uh, writing uh, process while he's in prison because he cannot go back to these cities physically. Uh, Philippians was a prison epistle. And Paul suggests several things about the relationship he has with the Philippian church. So picture Paul in Rome, uh, in prison, and writing back to the, uh, the, the church in Philippi and, and expressing various things to them. You might recall that the book of Philippians is one characterized by the word joy. Uh, Count it all joy, uh, he suggests. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, this is part of his message. But please note several of the factors lying behind uh, uh, the prison epistle to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13. Philippians 1. Verses 12 and 13. Here Paul uh, tells us where he is. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has, rarely, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, we don't know for certain, of course, that the imprisonment about which Paul speaks in Philippians is this imprisonment in the city of Rome, but we suspect that that is so uh, at the end of the book of Acts. And Paul suggests here that, that, he's, uh, that the uh, gospel has even reached the Praetorian Guard. These would be the elite soldiers in the Roman army. If you consider the Roman army as the elite armed force in the known world of that day, the Praetorian Guards would be the elite ones. Their job was to stay in Rome, and their job was to protect Caesar himself. And so here were the finest soldiers on earth, and apparently Paul was being guarded by some of them. I, I just picture in my mind's eye uh, the shift change. As one praetorian guard comes and takes the place of the other one, I can imagine the conversation between the two guards as one says, well, what did the preacher do this time? And the other guard says, well, he preached to me. And so they exchange uh, uh, the chains or the keys or whatever it is that they had, and the one leaves going back to his home, and the other remains and kind of rolls his eyes and says, well, preacher, are you to preach to me again and Paul smiles and says well I'm glad you uh, suggested that because yes that's what I intend to do uh, Philippians was a prison epistle. Uh, he even says so. He is uh, uh, there in chains. But he, he says some fascinating things about, about his relationship with the uh, Philippians using a particular word. I'd like you to note this. Uh, it is the Greek word koinonia. And it is uh, translated um, variously in the Bible as partnership or sharing or fellowship even. I realize that often when we hear the word fellowship, we can almost hear the coffee percolating and we can almost smell uh, uh, the uh, uh, Aunt, Aunt Edna's uh, uh, casserole in our uh, fellowship meal. But fellowship is a much deeper and broader term in the New Testament than just that. Please notice, if you would, uh, Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word Paul uses there is partnership. It is the word koinonia. You're sharing in the gospel until now. In some way, in some sense, Paul and the Philippians have been sharing in this endeavor to spread the gospel. Verse 6, and he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love the uh, uh, statement the Apostle Paul has of uh, saying, uh, you and I, we share in this work. We're partners in this work. Uh, please note also at the end of the Philippian letter in Philippians 4, beginning with verse 14, that Paul talks specifically of how uh, the Philippian church and Paul had been together, had been participating, had been having fellowship in the gospel. Philippians 4, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you, he says, to share in my trouble. And there again he uses the word koinonia, to share, to have partnership, uh, to have communion even uh, in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, and that's the same word, in giving and receiving except you only. Now, my suggestion there is that the Philippian church have been characterized by their dedication to uh, supporting Paul. It dawns on us that the Philippian church is the supporting congregation, and Paul is their missionary. Uh, I see that I'm almost out of time, so I'll continue with this point in the next session. I appreciate you listening to me. I'm glad that we had this opportunity to study the Word and to be inspired by uh, this great man, this great Christian, this inspiring individual, the Apostle Paul. God bless you.